Well, hello and welcome once again uh, to Citizens. My name is David and I have the privilege of serving as a family life pastor here and privilege to share God's word with us today. Um, today I'll be closing out our series in the Holy Spirit. However, this won't be the last time we hear about the Spirit as our theme for the year is a Spirit-filled life. And so you'll find uh, anyone that's teaching up here referring to and mentioning uh, the Spirit throughout the year. And our hope with this introductory series is that, um, that we wanted to bring clarity and substance and a common understanding uh, to somewhat of a nebulous figure uh, in the Christian faith. Uh, and so that's what we hope to uh, have accomplished through this introductory series. And so if you're interested and you're joining us for the first time, you're catching the tail end of the series, and you want to hear all the, uh, the teachings prior to today, you can find us on YouTube, uh, Citizens LA, the complete series is there. And if and when you find us, please like, subscribe, and turn on the notification. Uh, shout out to Sil, who works really hard in providing that for us. You know, within this series, we've talked about the personality and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is someone who instructs, uh, who illuminates, and who intercedes on uh, behalf of us. Uh, there are things, because he is a person, we can suffocate, we can frustrate the spirit, but there's also ways in which we can create more space and more room for the spirit to take a hold of our lives. But in all these things, the spirit has an objective in our lives, and that is to sanctify us, to change our innermost being, uh, to transform us. That's his objective. And so I want to take a look at what that looks like in kind of real time, in real life. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 17 through 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles or your apps, it's going to be up on the screen behind me for you to follow along. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's Word. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. Amen. You know, if someone were to ask, come up to you and ask you, uh, what, is, what does Christianity offer me? Uh, how would you respond to that question? I think many of us would answer in the following way. Christianity offers this, salvation as a gift of grace, and that is unique to the Christian faith. But then the follow-up question will be, what then is salvation? And I would guess that many of us will describe salvation in terms of a futuristic benefit, something along the lines of, if you believe in Jesus, you get to go to heaven, and you can avoid hell. And I think this is a common and popular conception of the Christian message, is a future benefit. Now, that's not wrong, but I believe that's incomplete to the gospel message. It's not the whole story. Because if we talk about, have, uh, if we talk about salvation as just purely going to a place, what ends up happening is salvation becomes a voucher that we're just safeguarding until we can redeem it when our time is up. But when we read about God's work of saving or redemption throughout the entirety of Scripture, 
This is not how salvation is described. Whether it's the Israelites in the Old Testament where God rescues them from slavery or whether it's Jesus who goes to that cross to die for us. What's happening there? And what we see is we always see a dual purpose in God's saving act. He saves from, but then he also saves to. God redeemed Israel from slavery to a life of being his people in the promised land. Jesus redeemed sinners from judgment and condemnation to a life of joy and freedom. However, this life of freedom and joy doesn't come all at once. It is experienced incrementally, actually. And so salvation is then a launch pad into a lifelong journey of growing into the given identity and experiencing the gospel blessings of being his children. This is what sanctification is. And so there's this idea, a theological concept called progressive sanctification. And this is the work that the Holy Spirit is committed to do in our lives. And so I have three questions to outline our message for those that are filling out forms or taking notes. The first question is, what is sanctification? Second, why is it progressive? And third, how does it work? What is it? Why is it progressive? And how does it work? So first, what is sanctification? I just want to give a definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, catechisms are kind of summary statements of certain doctrines of the Christian faith. They're not at the same level of scripture, but they help us understand what's happening throughout scripture. And so this is the question, what is sanctification? And this is the answer. It is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. You know, another word that uh, we can use for sanctification is transformation. Transformation. The goal of the spirit and the pursuit of the Christian life, it is to change. It is to change. Now, I understand that in our world right now, uh, we, we put high value on just be yourself. Keeping it real. Be true to who you are. Now, I understand what that message is, is talking about, but the Christian message and the Holy Spirit's objective in our lives is actually to transform us. But according to this definition, a Christian is both transformed, but also still transforming. We are renewed, but then are enabled more and more to experience that renewal. Now, a passage that helps us understand this concept of we already transformed, but also still transforming is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. This is what Peter says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, what Peter first does here, he identifies the Christians as obedient children, reminding them of their status that they have with God. And then the command is given, be like God. Be holy as he is holy. You know, children in some way, shape, or form will always resemble their parents. And, you know, after having our fourth child, as soon as we posted a picture of her, 
we got messages saying, oh, she's totally a Chong child. Definitely a Chong, right? And me being a little insecure, I'm like, wait, is that a good thing that, that you know, she looks like a Chong child? Then Jane and I will go and look at our, our daughter and try to look at different distinct features. And Danny, our, our daughter, our fourth daughter, she has the double eyelid action going. And then Jane will be like, that's an on trait. That's not a Chong trait, right? And then every Sunday, I would, like without fail, people come up to me and they say, you look just like Deacon. Because none of us, we don't have the double eyelid action going, right? He looks just like you. And, you know, this idea of sanctification, when we have it in the terms of a kind of familiar or a familial concept, it's helpful. Because this is precisely what Peter is getting to. See, holiness is not about rigid rules to follow. Holiness is actually about relationship. And this too, this, this idea is unique to the Christian faith. Relationship comes before reform. Relationship comes before reform. See, when we hear the gospel message and the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, and then he aids us in helping to see Jesus as our Savior, something happens instantly. We become a child of God. We are renewed by the Spirit, born again by the Spirit. And we are placed into God's family. There is no probationary period. There is nothing pending. It is immediate. But now... As God's children living in his household, we are undergoing a repurposing, a reordering of our lives to resemble our Father. You know, the general framework of religion, if you look at it, is that one needs to first repurpose and reorder their life to gain a position with God. That is how generally religion works. So you need to familiarize yourself with God's rules, his laws. you got to start reforming your life so that God will accept you, so you'll be in his good graces. See, the gospel flips it. As a free gift of grace, by faith, you have a position with God. And through this relationship, you undergo change. We're not working to get a seat at the table we're living our lives as if we're sitting at the table with God. See, the greatest gift that the Christian life offers and the Christian faith offers actually isn't heaven. The greatest gift that Christianity offers is you get the sovereign creator, the ruler of all, as your loving father. You know, these past few years, I've had the opportunity uh, to develop friendships with people that have been institutionalized. They've served years and years in prison. And as I'm walking with them, I realize that, you know, although getting out is great, their journey of reentry and reintegration into society is extremely challenging. So many restrictions, so many obstacles for them to feel like they're truly free. It made me realize that it's one thing to be freed. It is completely different than to experience freedom. There's a difference. See, the Christian life is not just about escaping judgment, but to live in the joy and freedom that God offers his children. 
You know, but this experience of living into or experience the reality of the gospel blessings, it is difficult. It is slow. And this brings us to our second question. Why is Christian change progressive? You know, Jane and I, we celebrated uh, 12 years of being married together uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there are certain things as I look back on those 12 years that I was able to grow and change in, right? Living with another human being. One of those things being putting the toilet seat down, right? Thank God for that because God knew I was going to have three daughters. And also, I, thought, I think he also knew that I was going to serve as citizens where J Jason and I are the only males in our staff. So that habit, I, it's, it's a habit now. I, I, even if I think I, I thought I forgot to put it down, I would, I would wake up and go back and put it down just so that I won't feel Jane's wrath, right? But there are certain things that I still have a hard time changing. I'm one of those people that just takes off clothes and just throws it around the house, right? Socks, shirts. I just change and I just throw it out. And I, to this day, it's so hard for me to change. I'm sure I'm triggering some couples right now that experience that together. But we are all averse to change. It's hard to change, right? Habits die hard. And so going back to our passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18, let me read this for us once again. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is Paul talking about here? He's contrasting an old way of encountering God and a new way of encountering him made possible by the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul refers to the veil, right, the veil, he's specifically talking about Moses' intimate meetings with God, specifically on Mount Sinai. This is during the ex Exodus era. God, uh, Moses had these intimate meetings and encounters with God. And so he would come down from the uh, mountain holding the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, and his face would be glowing, bright white. And the people seeing Moses were afraid of him. And so what do they do? They put a veil over his face because it was so bright. And they were terrified because they knew he met with God. But then when Moses would go back to meet with God, he would take that veil off. He's talking about a special uh, relationship that God had with Moses that would transform him to this brightness. And so not everyone had this special access. Therefore, the veil was necessary. See, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there were certain conditions that you needed to meet in order to experience God's full blessing and his presence. And if those conditions weren't met, it would lead to curses. And Israel's experience all throughout the Old Testament can be explained in this framework of blessings and curses. And what we know is that they were rebellious, stiff-necked, and they con continuously disobeyed God. And so the law represents this veil that restricted one's access to encounter God. So then why is Paul able to say in our passage now with unveiled faces. What happened to that veil? See, in order for that veil to be lifted, the law of God, the covenant obligations, needed to be fully met. And this is why the gospel is such good news. Jesus Christ came 
for us and to us. He succeeded where everyone else failed. He perfectly obeyed God's laws, blameless, without sin. Awesome. That's amazing. But what's left remained is the debt that we all accrued because of our failures. So then what did Jesus do as a blameless and a perfect man? He gave his life as a, as a ransom sacrifice to pay off our debt. This is the good news that we celebrate every Sunday. He took our place in two ways. He lived perfectly, but then he died in our place as a sinner. And so through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the very obstacle, those very obligations that got in the way of us fully encountering and experiencing God in an intimate way has then been removed. Now Christian, Christians, by grace, can have unadulterated fellowship and unlimited access to Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, it's in the beholding of Jesus that transformation happens beholding him in all his beauty. And herein lies the ch challenge of sanctification. And this is why it's so progressive. See, although the barrier has been removed, there are things in our lives right now that obstruct and hinder our ability to behold Jesus. You know, Jason preached on spiritual warfare a few weeks ago. I really want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, to go back and listen to it, because he talks specifically of those barriers. See, there are things that we are accustomed to beholding before Jesus. And what I've realized is we become what we behold, inevitably. The more that we're beholding these things, it, it, it starts to shape and form us. These obstructions can be physical objects that we desire. They can be spiritual idols that we worship. Or they can also even be experiences that we have. And so the pattern set forth by Paul, in talking about this transformation or be, beholding Christ is this illustration of clothing, the idea of putting off and putting on. One of Paul's favorite illustrations to use and metaphors to use to talk about sanctification. I want to read for us Ephesians chapter 4, verses, uh, um, chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, putting off and putting on. You know, when we're taken into and adopted into God's family, uh, naturally we're going to bring baggage with us. And in that baggage are ways of uh, understanding life, understanding relationships, things uh, that gave us meaning, worth, and value. We bring all of that into God's house as his children. And, uh, you know, we're having family worship and we have some children here, so I brought some props and uh, so a little show and tell. I brought my baggage with you guys. Um, the first one I want to show you, it's been a while since I laced these on, but they are my basketball shoes. 
Uh, if you know anything about me, I'm highly competitive. I'm all about performance. If there's a new sport or a new thing, a new hobby, I need to be better than everyone else. That's just how I've been, that's how I am. Super competitive. And so these shoes represent my performance. My desire to outperform everyone else or even outperform my own standards. So I bring this um, in my relationship with God. It talks about my abilities and my performance. The second thing I want to share with you is this jersey. I know I have a friend here that went to school with me. It, University of Washington, the Huskies. Um, this jersey represents my past life in college. College were my roughest years. I struggled with a two-year addiction. I was in a very toxic and dysfunctional relationship. Um, it was riddled with pain, shame, and guilt. So this represents that. I bring this into my relationship with God. Last thing I want to show you is this. It is my clergy robe. Uh, this talks about my accomplishment, uh, my, my pride, if I can say, my self-righteousness, what I, what I achieved, something I'm proud of. I bring this into my relationship with God. I bring all these things into my newfound relationship with Jesus. The funny thing is, none of these things mean anything to him. It has no bearing on my relationship with Jesus. But because it's familiar and even comforting, these are things I pick up on a regular basis. And so when we experience pain, discomfort, or even frustration, we turn to things that are familiar. We turn to things that make us feel comfortable. So it plays out like this. You know, I've been stagnant in my walk with God. I sense a notable, noticeable distance between me and him. I haven't been to church. I haven't been praying. I haven't been doing my quiet times. I'm feeling insecure with God. So what do I do? I start reaching for my shoes. I want to lace them on. Because I think that if I can perform, I can feel closer to God. So I lace these on. I rev up my activity, I start reading more, I start praying more, I give more, thinking that is what God wants, and that's what, what's going to make me close to him. When I fail as a husband or a father, which is quite often, when I lash out in anger, when I'm impatient, when I'm selfish, in those moments of feeling exposed, what do I reach for? I reach for this, shame and guilt, self-condemnation. But here's the interesting part. When I'm doing well, things in life is going well. I'm doing my disciplines. I feel good as a husband and a father. What do I reach for? I reach for my robe. I reach for my robe. I put this on. You know, we all have a wardrobe uh, that, that we're familiar with and that we're used to. Uh, they're collected over time from our upbringing, from our experiences, and it's so difficult to change, especially when it's so ingrained in us. You know, honest confession, when I got invited to come to Citizens to be a pastor, one of the first things that came to my mind is, oh my gosh, I think I have to change what I wear. Um, you know, Citizens has this reputation of being very hip and very cool, and that's nothing of who I am as the way I dress. 
but you know, Jane slowly over time started to change my wardrobe, and people took notice. Our staff's like, "Ooh, you look a little bit different, right?" I'm slowly discarding the old business casual that I'm used to wearing at the church and more casual, right? You know, I start to put my shoes on. You know what God says? Uh, you don't need to put that on. My son has performed for you. He's performed for you. You could take those off. When I start to put on my jersey, God says, oh, you don't need to put that on anymore. My son, my son took your shame and guilt and got rid of it. When I go to put on my robe, God says, oh, that's cute. You think you're righteous? I gave you my son. I've clothed you in perfect righteousness. Now that belongs to you. Again, we have a collection of clothing. Some, we have it because of extreme trauma and abuse, sins that were committed against us. It's stuck to us, and it's hard. For others, we are collecting what the world tells us is worth, worthy and valuable. And so we're constantly upgrading, adding to our collection, hoping that I could feel comfortable, I could feel at rest, but they never satisfy. Some of us, we have clothes of pride and righteousness, self-righteousness, because we've achieved a lot of things in this life. We have gained influence. God takes a look at all of these things and says, you don't have to wear those things around me. I have something better for you. You know, the life of freedom and joy offered to us in the gospel is experienced in greater measure when we're able to remove the old and embrace the new. About our battle is growing a distaste for what we're used to and growing an appetite for the new things that God has for us. And this brings us to our last question. How does this work? How, do this, how does this work? Is sanctification passive where God just does it all? Or does, do we have a part to play in it? And the answer is both. God is actually committed to our sanctification but he asks us to cooperate in that process as well, to join in the Spirit's effort to transform us. I want to reemphasize, it is both putting off and putting on. What, I, what people do often is what I like to call spiritual layering. What I mean is this, that we don't really take off the old. We just try to apply the new to the old. Does that make sense? The action is put off and put on. What we do is we put on these spiritual blessings over the new. It's the equivalent of me uh, putting a new diaper on the old diaper of Danny. Uh, Appearance-wise, it looks fine, but the smell is horrendous. But this is what we do. We spiritually layer. We spiritually mask. You know, putting off the old is extremely extremely difficult and painful. It means that we're exploring the depths of our hearts and our minds, asking the difficult question of why am I the way that I am? Why are these habits so difficult to put to death? It's hard work to put off the old. And I think that's why counseling is helpful. I think community is important because we can process the old with one another but also get others to help us, to remind us of the new things. You know, one of my favorite parables of Jesus 
is the parable of the lost son. I'm sure many of you guys have heard of this, but if you haven't, this younger son betrays his father, asking for his inheritance. The father gives it to him out of the goodness of his heart. He squanders his inheritance, and he finds himself without clothes, without shoes, eating, eating the same food that the pigs are eating. That's where he finds himself. But then he comes to his senses and realizes that his father has amazing things in his house, food, even for his servants, abundance. And so he gets up and he walks back. Before he can even get home, what does his father do? His father sees him from a distance and he runs to his son. And before he can even finish his speech, because his idea is, if I could just be a servant in my father's house, maybe I can get back into the good graces of my father. He didn't get a chance to share his plan with his dad. His dad comes and he tells people, bring a robe, put it on him. Bring sandals, put them on him. Bring a ring, put it on him. Let's celebrate. For I thought my son was dead, but he is alive. You know, the image of the father dressing the son when the son had no clothes is something I want us to take away today. The father putting and dressing us in our nakedness and our shame, in our guilt and our condemnation. He clothes us. You know, in my mind, if I play out the parable and I think about the next day or the days to come, I imagine the son's ongoing struggle of living in his father's house because of what he's done. I imagine him struggling to put on that robe, put on that ring, and put on that sandal, waking up every day. Do I deserve a place to be here? Walking around the house timid, unsure of himself, insecure and timid, I imagine him crossing paths with his father and his father smiling. That's yours. And then the son feeling at ease. Wow, I do belong here. These do belong to me. You know, God has rules in his house. He does have expectations of us. He wants us to be like him. But listen very carefully. There is no love to be lost when we're disobedient. But at the same time, there's no love to be gained in our obedience. Let me say that one more time. There's no love to be lost when we're disobedient. But at the same time, there's no love to be gained in our obedience. Because the Father's love for his children is not based on worth, but of birth. then you may may be asking them, why try it all? Why do anything at all? Why put in an effort in my relationship with God? Why read the Bible? Why go to church? Why pray? Why serve others? Why give? It's for your joy. It's for your experience of freedom. These are the good things that God has for you that he wants you to enjoy. You know, there's a very important difference that I want to share with us today The difference between union and communion. Union is a gift of grace. We did nothing for this union that we have with God, this permanent, secure union. But communion is different. Communion we can experience, an ever-increasing experience with Jesus in fellowship. And our communion happens because of our union. 
Nothing can change your union with God, but we can grow in our enjoyment, in our fellowship, and the joy that God has for us. See, grace doesn't get rid of effort. It changes the motivation of our effort. And I know there are those of us here that are struggling in understanding Christian faith or struggling in your walk with God. I want to read the lyrics of a song that I, I, I love. It's called Day by Day uh, from the band Citizens. Not Citizens, our band, but the band Citizens. This is what the words say. Even when I'm at my worst, I'm still of righteous birth, covered by a saving grace, past, present, future debt erased. My heart is changing day by day. When I run like wildfire, I'm still a ransomed child, bought with blood, split on a tree, sin, death, they have no hold on me. My will is changing day by day. Brothers and sisters, God is not done with you. He has not left you. He's still working in you and through you. Church, I want to encourage us, let's, let's put in an effort. Let's try. And you will fail. I guarantee you, I fail all the time. But God's grace lifts us back up. And he looks at us. He says, you're still mine. May we do this with one another for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray. I want to invite, um, I want to invite you to take time with God. What's, what consists of your old wardrobe? What's in your collection? What gets in the way of you beholding the beauty of Christ? Whatever those things may be, I want to invite you to lay them at the feet of Christ. Ask God, please, remove this from me and help me to enjoy and embrace the new things that you have for me. Uh, if that's you today and you want to make that prayer, I just want to give you a moment to spend uh, with God, and I'll close us in a few moments. Holy Spirit, we need you. Um, we need you to help us. There are things uh, in the way of us truly embracing and experience, experiencing the grace that you have for us. Uh, things that we are so accustomed to beholding, thinking that it will give us what we're seeking, um, but oftentimes it falls short, makes us feel even more empty than before. I pray that you would truly help us to see you um, as you are in your glory, in your goodness, in your love, in your mercy, in your patience, and even your discipline because you love your children and you'll discipline us when we need. Help us to even accept that. Um, as we venture, Lord, this year to understand what it means to conform to your likeness, to experience the fullness of the Spirit, we need your help um, and help us to be there for one another uh, and to help even put these clothes on that you give to us. 
God, as we respond in worship, may you receive all the praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.